If you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 3, I'll read the first seven verses. Ezra 3, 1. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josdok, and his brothers the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone whom offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the permission they had heard from Cyrus, king of Persia. I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and this great privilege we have to assemble together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship you, and to be instructed by you, God, from your word. And we pray that we would hear your voice and our hearts would be inclined to you, to be strongly supported by you and led and strengthened by you. We pray that this time, God, would truly be for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before I forget, I need to give a shout out to three of my grandkids that are watching at home. They would normally be at church with their mom and dad, but dad has to work, so they're at home. So hi, Charles Dawson and Ivan. Good to see you behave. I can watch you right there. Okay. (laughs) And they're home with their wonderful mom, who is expecting another grandchild in May. So we're very excited about that. Um, I was in Colorado this week teaching at one of our Torchbearer sister schools, Ravencrest, and it was cold and snowy. Um, It was another week in Texas. Um, So I was so glad to be back. All the students there are having to wear a mask in class. I didn't have to wear one while I was teaching, but I looked at 60 students all covered up with their faces the whole time. So that was an interesting experience and not used to seeing you know, face is covered, and it's hard to get a feel for what's going on. But anyway, so good to be back. I love you guys, and it's just every time I come home and get to come to Bernie Bible Church again, I'm just thinking how blessed we are and how blessed I am, and I'm just so grateful to be able to be here. It just renews my heart and encourages me um, every time. Well, we've just gotten started with looking at Ezra, and last week we saw how God stirred the heart of Cyrus to release not only the people of Israel, but really all the people that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and specifically that they could go back to their national homelands and build temples to their God. And Cyrus um, was probably instructed that this was prophesied by Isaiah, that he would do this 150 years or more before he even did it. 
Um, it could have been that even Daniel told him um, of what had been prophesied. We don't know, but chances are he knew fully well what he was doing, and he was in hearty agreement with it, and he did everything he could to make sure that this would happen. And of the two or three million people that were scattered around um, the Medo-Persian Empire, only less than 50,000 went back. I think that God stirred all their hearts to go back, but only that few responded to God's stirring. And so it says that not only was Cyrus's heart stirred, but also the hearts of the heads of the father's households, they also were stirred to return. And then in the rest of chapter 1, um, I didn't go into all the details here. I don't think it's, we need to, but in the rest of chapter 1 is all the um, um, things that have been stolen, um, looted out of the temple that are given back to the people of Israel to take back for the reconstruction of the temple. So all the, all the gold and silver um, um, dishes and everything, they've been returned, and so they've been sent back by Cyrus with the Israelites. Chapter 2 is a chronicling of all the people that returned, and then um, by their households, and we see that all 12 tribes are represented here. There's some people that say that during the captivity and the dispersion during those years, that 10 of the tribes were lost. That's not true. Um, they're all 12 in existence, and all 12 um, representatives from all 12 tribes came back to Israel. But then I want to pick it up in verse 61 of chapter 2, and then go over to chapter 3, and it says... Um, I won't get all these names correct, so I'm not even going to try, but it says the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah and the sons of Hakaz, they were looking at all these people, and what they're trying to determine is, are they really who they claim to be? And because of, of so many years outside the land, there were people who were truly Jewish that could not establish their lineage. And so they would not let them serve as official priest until they could establish that they were officially from the line of Levi. So verse 62, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean, and they were excluded from the priesthood. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest stood up with the Urim and Thummim. Urim and Thummim were, were two stones on the priestly... Um, um, breastplate that he wore that were used for determining God's will. We don't know the fully how that worked, but apparently they can ask a question of God, and God would, would, would indicate yes or no um, through the stones that were on that breastplate. And so they didn't have that breastplate, at least not yet, and so they, there's no way they could tell from the actual lineage whether these men were truly Levites or not. So they said, sorry, we are going to be sticklers here, and even though we believe you, and there's no reason to, to say that you're lying, you can't prove it, and we can't ask God. And so you're not going to be priest. And all of a sudden, this is the point here, Israel is being very, very particular about getting the details right. That's the lesson here. And then we come over to chapter 3, and they're in the land, and the very first thing they do is they rebuild the altar of sacrifice. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But the key here is the end of verse 2 where it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The second thing they're going to do in this chapter is reestablish the observation of the feast. And it says in verse 4, as it is written, they observe the feast again. The third thing they do in this chapter is reconstruct the foundation of the temple. 
And, and each of these things, they're trying to do it as God has said. Now, there's um, even that, the dimensions, all of it, they were doing it as God had said. It's interesting that um, when, when Darius comes on the scene later and reads to them what Cyrus, because Cyrus had, had said they could go back, Darius found that, that decree, and actually they had been given permission to build a temple that was much longer, larger than the one that Solomon built. They didn't do that. And, um, and, and so they wanted to be sticklers about all the details. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they were legalists. No, not at all. Even when there's reference made to the law of Moses, it's immediately followed there. If you look at that, at that again at the end of verse 2, as it is written in the law of Moses, the legalist. Right? I mean, if gave the law, he has to be a legalist. No. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And so this is the emphasis here, and that we want now, because we've lived for 70 years in captivity, we don't want to mess up again. We know what it's like to live apart from God. You know, when I think it was King Rehoboam, after the son of Solomon, when he took the throne, he wasn't at all in, um, intentional about following God. And so God spoke through one of the prophets and said, I'm going to let Rehoboam in Israel learn the servitude of the nations so that they can learn servitude to me is better. And that's a pretty powerful statement. But God's saying, you know, you can, you can make your choice. And if you want to live in bondage to the world, you can and if that, because that's the only choice, either we live in bondage to the Lord or we live in bondage to the world. There is no middle ground here. It's one or the other. And God says, my bondage is not bad. Jesus will pick up on that in Matthew and say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But it is a yoke and it is a burden. So he doesn't dismiss that. But he says, try the alternative. And then you go, Jesus is so much better. And sometimes, sadly, people growing up in Christian homes have to discover for themselves that the yoke of the world is not something you want, that there is no life there, it is only death, and much better to be under the yoke of God than the yoke of this world. So I need to just establish some, a bit more historical background here. You know, I started as I, as I finished up last week, and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to cover three, three, four, five, and six this next Sunday. Ha. Now I'm looking at it and spent quite a bit of time this week thinking and meditating on it, and I'm going, I hope we get through chapter three. Um, because I, I, I really feel it's imperative for us who maybe don't have all that much familiarity with the history of Israel and with the Old Testament to spend a little bit of time here looking at the historical context of what exactly their situation was what they got themselves into, and why they are so diligent now to get it right. So I'm often, we know, you know, we're going to, on Palm Sunday coming up at the end of the month, um, end of March, we'll have testimonies again. We're, we'll ask different folks to share their testimonies. And I'm telling you, many times, as we all know, the people who are most grateful for their salvation are people who did not grow up Christians. And we go, we know what it's like. We know what the world has to offer and doesn't have anything to offer. So I want us to go back just briefly here to a couple of passages to Deuteronomy 28. And I, whenever I'm teaching 1 Kings, I try to stress with the students 
that this is one of the most overlooked and yet most significant passages in all the Bible, Deuteronomy 28 through 30, especially 28. Because in this, we don't even have a title for it. There's nothing in the Bible that's given its official title for this, but it's, it's sometimes referred to as the Palestinian Covenant or the Deuteronomic Covenant because it's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And what was happening is, is that God had instructed Moses to tell Joshua that when they came into the land, they were going to divide the nation after they conquered Jericho and, and all the men um, were all circumcised. The next thing they were going to do is they're going to divide the nation, six tribes on Mount Gerizim and six tribes on Mount Ebal, and they face each other. And then Joshua was going to, to stand down in the valley between these two mountains, and he was going to read all this, probably had it memorized, and the first part of it, he would be talking to the people on Mount Gerizim. And he says, blessed are you. And then the second half of it, he turns to the people on Mount Ebal, and he says, cursed are you. Now, wouldn't that make a pretty dramatic way to illustrate your point? If I divide you up and I say, okay, you're blessed, you're cursed. You go, that was an interesting sermon. I walked out of church cursed today. That's what Moses had Joshua do. It's a very dramatic illustration here. So six tribes, he says, blessed are you when you walk according to the ways of God. Cursed are you when you turn away from God. And these, and these blessings and curses could not be more specific. They aren't just prophecies. They're promises. There is no getting away from this. God is going to do these things. You can take it to the bank. So what are the blessings? Verse 28, chapter 1. Now it shall be if you will diligently obey the Lord your God. And see, now Ezra's being, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're being diligent. Because that's the first part. If you will diligently, and they're going, we must be diligent in this. Not lackadaisical, not careless, but diligently. If we diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And he did that under David and Solomon. They were high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. You will not be able to escape the blessings of God. What a promise. You won't be, you, you won't be able to be unblessed if you wanted to be, as long as you are being diligent to obey God. So then he says what those blessings will be. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the country, blessed shall you be in the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall you be in your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. In other words, I'm going to bless your socks off. McCall trans translation there, paraphrase. But that's what he's saying. And then he just continues on that. When you go to war, your armies are going to flee. He says, you're going to be blessed in your barns. You're going to be blessed in everything that you put your hand to. You will be blessed in the land. He goes on and on. Verse 11, the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body and the offspring of the beast and the produce of the ground and the land. Verse 12, and the Lord will open for you his good storehouses, the heavens to give rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations and you shall not borrow. I mean, God is saying, Think about every area of your life, and it will all be blessed. You will have the Midas touch on everything. And it's not because of what they're doing. It's not because they're smarter than the other nations. It's not because they're anything other than they're trusting God. 
Trust in God. I tell people, you know, I've said it before, Chick-fil-A. Man, God's blessing that business. We have one of the managers that, that attends here with us. And I'm going, praise God, how God's blessing that place. But it's because they have sought out to honor God. I like their food, but honestly, it's nothing to write home about. And I go, and again, that's not to be insulting. I like it. If the far as, far, far as fast food goes, wonderful. But I'd rather eat at home, honestly. Amen. God's just blessing them, pouring out his blessing on it. Wonderful. That's what God said he would do to his people, Israel, when they walked with him. Now, I'm not going to make a direct equivalency here between Israel and the church because these are not promises for the church. We will know God's blessing, yes, when we walk with the Lord. But don't, because see, if you make a direct equivalency here to us and you're into prosperity theology. No, don't do that, okay? What God promises us is different than what he promises Israel. He says, the church, if you walk with me, if you desire to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. That is not what he says to Israel. He says, your enemies are going to melt away before you. He doesn't say that to the church. And so it is different. He promises us suffering. When we are walking with God, we will suffer. He told Israel, when you're walking with me, you will not suffer. That is as different as you can get. God did not promise land to the church. And so this promise here of rain on your land, that is not for the church. That is for Israel. But I will tell you, this covenant is still in force today. It is not a fulfilled covenant. It is a continual covenant, and it is still the history of Israel. You cannot understand Israel's history apart from this covenant. Look at some of the curses, verse 15. But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord to observe, to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I, have charged, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you. And then he just starts looking at the people of Mount Ebal. Cursed are you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be in the basket and the kneading bowl. Cursed shall you be the offspring of your body and the produce of the ground and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. I'm going to curse your socks off. Man. And then he goes even to more specifics. Verse 21. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until you are consumed from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew. And you're going, is there anything left? And there is. He keeps going with it. In verse 23, he's going to make it stop raining. And this is where Elijah prayed on the basis of this when he said that there would be no more rain. Verse 28, the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. Wow. Verse 45, and I'm skipping a lot of curses in between. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. There's no if here. You go, man, then why would, I, why would I disobey? It couldn't be clear. But they do disobey. Gravely do they disobey. How bad will they disobey? It's going to get so bad, it says here, look at verse 54. Verse 53, it's going to be so bad that your cities are going to be sieged and the siege will become so bad that famine is going to exist within your cities to such an extent, verse 53, that you shall eat the offspring of your own bodies. 
You're going to consume your children. And then he goes, the best people among you, the most, verse 54, the man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward his wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain, so that he will not even give one of them any of the flesh of his children which he shall eat. And the women shall do the same thing. The pinnacles of society, the people that are most mannerly, most sophisticated, the last ones that you would think would do something like this will eat their own children. It doesn't have to happen. But this is the downward spiral that they're headed toward if they turn away from God. And they do. Chapter 30. Look at the first part of this chapter. So it shall become when all of these have come, things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will, re will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you from there, and He will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And that's where we are now with Ezra. They have turned back to God, and God has used a pagan king to issue a decree that they can go home. And yet many of them have become so accustomed to Babylon, the vast majority, comfortable, wealthy, at ease. And they go, why would we return to that mess in Israel? And less than 50,000 will go back. Now I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. And we'll see why God was so utterly justified to permit His people being scattered around the earth. The first nation to come against Israel was Assyria. And at this time in Israel's history, Israel was divided into two parts. The northern ten tribes, ten tribes called Israel, and the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin called Judah. Israel went wayward much faster than Judah did. But there's nothing that Israel did that Judah was not guilty of. In fact, God will say that Judah even eventually went further away from God than Israel did. And what they did was really just um, in many respects beyond description. It's one of those passages in the Bible that you don't read to your children um, you know, before they go to sleep at night. Um, it, is, it is horrible, horrible. And they knew, they knew what they were in for, and they still did it. When Assyria took Israel captive, they were known nationally, internationally, as the fishermen. And it wasn't because they did a lot of fishing. We have stone um, carvings of how they took people captive. And so we can see it, you know, just, just carved out in stone. And the Assyrians were called the fishermen because when they conquered your nation, 
they had a policy of removing conquered nations from their homelands so that those conquered people would not be patriotic and nationalistic and try to raise up a rebellion against Syria. So the best way to do that is just remove them. Well, they didn't do that nicely. They utterly humiliated the people. And one fashion of doing that is they would, they would hook with fish hooks all the captives together and then have line connecting all the fish hooks. And they would put those hooks in people's faces, in their chest, in their shoulders. They didn't care. They just hook you. Big fish hooks, huge hooks. And then they would start whipping the people and say, march. From Israel to Assyria is 900 miles. Most people didn't make it. And you can imagine when somebody stumbled because of weakness, not only did it rip the flesh out of his body, it ripped the flesh off everybody connected to him. And so they would just kick aside the person that died and rehook everybody else and make a march, make a march. Very few of the people would have made it to their destinations. It was brutal beyond imagination. They knew it was coming. Assyria didn't come against Israel just one time. It came against Israel three times. The same with the Babylonians. They didn't come against Israel just one time, three times. At any point, they could have repented. And they refused to because they loved what they were doing. I had one brother that just seemed to like getting spanked. I just didn't understand. And, you know, and I, I, was, I sat at, the, at, at our family table. Um, I sat as far away from mom and dad as I could get. My, this brother sat right next to my dad on his right. And it wasn't because that was the favored position. And um, he got in trouble meal after meal, it seemed. My mom would serve something that we, none of us liked, like boiled spinach or boiled okra. I mean, those are just torturous. I mean, we, we all need therapy today because of the things that we had to eat. <laughs> and, um, and so my, my brother would look at that and say, I'm not eating, eating that. And my dad would say, yes, you are. And he would look at my dad and say, no, I'm not. So my dad would take him to the back room and spank him. You could hear it back there, whop, 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 whop. Come sits down, and he says, I'm still not eating it. So he'd go back there again, whop, 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 sometimes three, four times in one meal. I'm just going, why? It doesn't have to be that hard. Me, I would let the dog come in the house, and I'd feed him whatever I didn't want. Or even ask for seconds, and that would so shock my parents that while they weren't looking, I would put what was on my plate back in the serving dish. <laughs> but my brother would just get spanked over and over again. One time my mom was spanking him, and she sat out on the side of the bed, and he looked at her and said, are you done? And she says, no, I'm just resting my arm. <laughs> it was not a good time. It was bad. And I can't read about the history of Assyria and Babylon without thinking of my brother. And thinking it just doesn't have to go this way. And we all know people like this. I mean, you think, how bad does your life have to get before you relent, before you cry uncle and say, God, I am kicking against the goads. God, I am fighting against you. How bad does it have to get? Seriously. Well, I'll tell you how bad it gets. We read that with with. Deuteronomy 28, but look at what it says here now in 2 Kings 17, just picking it up in verse 7. 
Now this came about because the Assyrians, the fishermen, hooking them in their flesh and dragging them off and many of them dying. This happened because God was fully justified. The sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, understatement of the year, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from the, under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. Again, if I'd written this, I, I, I would have gone into much more detail. But this simple statement is so significant. They walked in the customs of the nations the Lord drove out before them. They have become just like the people God kicked off the land. There is no difference between them and everyone else. And when God's people don't look like God, but God's people look like the world, God's people are in deep trouble. They deserve the discipline of God. And there is no longer, in the case of Israel, a dime's difference between the world and who they are. And so God was fully justified. I have a friend who just preached a sermon on the holiness of God. I appreciated that was the first song that we sung this morning about God being holy. It is the only attribute that is mentioned in repetition. Holy, holy, holy. I hadn't thought about that. Seems like a very obvious observation that my friend made. But he said it's the only attribute of God that is repeated back to back. Holy, holy, holy. And obviously, holiness means to be without sin. But as my friend was reminding me, it's so much bigger than that. In fact, the holiness of God can't even fully be comprehended because it means to be holy, with a W, holy other than what we are. It's not that God is more righteous than us, more loving than we are, more just than what we are. He is wholly more righteous, just, loving than we could ever comprehend. In fact, he is so holy more that it's not even more. It's different. It is distinct. His holiness is wholly other than distinct from anything that we could ever comprehend. God is distinct. He is wholly other. He is separate. And that's what his people are to be. If I am in right relationship with God, my life will take on what is true of God. And my life, like it or not, is going to be wholly distinct from wholly other than what you see in this world. And I'm not talking about just the way we dress. That is the least of it. Standing in the Denver airport yesterday watching what I'm sure are dear, godly, old order Mennonite ladies that were there. And you talk about standing out in, a, in the Denver airport. Everything about them was, was peculiar and distinctive. But that is not what God's talking about. And again, I don't challenge their hearts. I appreciate their boldness. And they're willing to walk around and look so different. They are peculiar. But we are to be a peculiar people. A distinct people. Because God is holy. And Israel lost its distinctiveness. So how can you claim to be God's people when God is wholly distinct and there's nothing distinct about you? God says, this is blasphemous. Do you call yourself by my name 
and you are not wholly different than the world around you? It's blasphemous. And God, loving His name and loving His people, says there has to come to a point where this is enough is enough. They walked in the customs of the nations. Verse 9, the sons of Israel did things secretly. This is talking about demonic, occultic, satanic practices. They were involved in witchcraft. They were worshiping demons, worshiping Satan, God's people. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in their towns and in their watch and their watchtower, a fortified city. These watch these high places were were just abhorrent beyond description. You can't even talk about it with children in the room. How bad it was what they were doing on these high places, and they brought these high places not just out in the country but into their own cities. So there's no escaping this. The immorality, the violence, the, the, everything that's taking place is not just out there somewhere. It is now here among us. God's people. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places that the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. I don't understand why, you know, I, I have some idea, but nobody fully understands why some sins, God says, rise to the level of kicking you out of a church until you repent. And other sins don't, right? Some people would say, well, all sin is the same, and so no sin should be judged. Ridiculous. There's nothing in the Bible that says all sin is the same. It says all sin is sin. It says all sin is lawlessness. All sin is unrighteousness. You break the least of the commandments, you've broken them all. But there's nothing in the Bible that says all sin is the same. We know that's not true. We see that here. They did evil things. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, for example, that unrepentant sexual immorality deserves church discipline. The Bible tells us that heretical teaching deserves church discipline. It tells us a divisive spirit where there's a person that's just constantly sowing discord. That deserves church discipline. But it never says gossip deserves church discipline. I imagine it could rise to that level because it could be so divisive. It never says gluttony deserves church discipline. And we're all guilty of gluttony at some time or another, especially around Easter. I mean, not Easter. Christmas, Thanksgiving, we eat too much. And thankfully, that's not grounds for church discipline. I'm saying this because what Israel did was not just your casual run-of-the-mill sins. It was huge, and it was God-provoking. It's like that child that just purposely just needles and and pokes and just, just almost like asking to be spanked. And that was Israel. Like really just challenging God. Will you really do anything? And again, I hope you see the parallels. How many times church people, Christians, will just in their lifestyles, they are openly challenging God to do something, thinking that he won't. And he is a patient, long-suffering God. Verse 12, they served idols concerning which the Lord had said to you, you shall not do this thing. 
Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets over and over and over. God was so patient with his people. Through, through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. Over and over again. However, they did not listen, but they stiffened their necks like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and they became vain. And they went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to not do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and they worshipped all the host of heaven. This would be the Zodiac. And they served Baal. And as though that wasn't bad enough, they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and they practiced divination and enchantments, and they sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them. None was left except the tribe of Judah. And Judah will be, as I said, even more guilty. It will only last another 135 years, and by the end of that time, they have only compounded the sins of Israel. And all of this happened because they would not listen to God. They would not walk according to God's word. So that's the historical background to Ezra 1 and 2 and 3, where we find Ezra being noting so carefully, they did as it is written in the word. They've learned their lesson. This is not legalism. It could be that. But this is because they fear God. And they've learned it is better to serve the, under the yoke of God than to serve under the yoke of the nations. Better to be liberated and free in, in God than to be in bondage to sin. They got what they deserved. They got less than what they deserved. God was actually merciful to them throughout all this time. And then when they come into the land, the first thing they do is say, we need an altar, first thing. Before the temple, before reobserving the feast, first thing, we need an altar. Why? Partly because it says in verse 3 of Ezra 3, they were terrified of the peoples they lived around. Now here's what they've learned. Our biggest problem as one author said, is not our sin. Our biggest problem is there's a holy God. And one day we will have to stand before him. And Israel has learned what it means to stand before a holy God. And they've also learned God is their good. And the only thing that can keep you from knowing the goodness of God is your sin hope we understand that. President Biden cannot keep us from knowing the goodness of God. A Congress in government totally in the hands of godless people. And I'm not saying they're all godless. But if even if they were, 
they cannot keep us from knowing the true goodness of God. What can keep us from knowing God's goodness is sin. That's the whole point of Israel's history. Their problem was never Assyria. Their problem was never Babylon. Their problem was sin. And that's why they built an altar first thing. Because sin separates from God. And now these people come back in the land, they're going, the last thing I want is to be separated from a holy God who is my good. Yes, I should fear him. Because sin deserves the wrath of God. But I should also love him because he is my good and I will never have any good apart from him. Nothing's changed in that respect. I am not preaching a prosperity theology, a prosperity gospel. But I am saying that what Israel experienced in principle is exactly what's still true today. God is our good. And the only thing that can keep us from knowing God as our good is sin. That is the barrier between us and God. That is the barrier between us and goodness is sin, not Democrats. Sin, my sin, your sin. And so they built an altar because they wanted nothing to separate them from God. And they looked around them and they go, we're home. But these people hate us. And we can look around us and go, all of a sudden we're living in a world where we're being hated. Pat and I had lunch um, yesterday with friends before we flew back. Now, I guess it would have been Friday. Lose track of time. And um, he's a Jewish believer. And they bought a house in a remote location, not off the grid, anything like that, but just in a small, quiet, Midwestern town. And part of the reason they've done that is because as he sees what's going on in this society, particularly as a Jewish Christian, he honestly feels threatened. I can't understand that fully. I can only understand the Christian part of the equation. And we are all feeling more threatened. You've probably read about the Equality Act that's coming up again. Evil piece of legislation. Pure evil. We have enemies surrounding us. And we should pray that we can live in peaceful times. Scripture exhorts us to do so. But I'm telling you, these Jews understood the real protection from the enemies is freedom from sin. Because the enemy can't touch those who are walking before God as God has intended, unless God permits. And sometimes he permits, I get it. But there is no greater safety than being clean before God. And the only thing that cleanses us is the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank God we don't have to go to an altar. We go to the altar any moment we want on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as 1 John 1 says, we confess our sins and he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we should do so almost with panic in our hearts when we see sin. 
because we live in a hostile world and God is our only good and sin separates us from God. That should make us cry out to get right with God and not to play and toy and be complacent with what we know provokes God. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your ways, for being the holy God that you are. That you'll never be anything other. You'll never be a God who can just look away from sin. You'll never be a God that will be unstirred, unprovoked. And this is good. And we will never have any good besides you. And I do pray, God, as we read your word and see how simple and serious these people became because of what you allowed to come upon them, that we would be wise and not like the fool that Proverbs describes, that you can beat him a hundred times and yet his folly will not depart from him, but that we would be the wise people, God, that you could, you could punish the one next to us and we will learn and take it to heart and be instructed. And I pray that we would receive your discipline and that we would count God as holy and right and good, your word. We would not debate with you and argue with you, think that what you've said is not clear when it is, but that we would yield humbly God before you and just say, yes, Lord, your will, your ways, and not our own. We thank you, God, for this time that we're living in, and it does seem to be growing darker. But you are the light that shines in the darkness. And we thank you, God, that our greatest problem will never be man, but it'll be our sin before a holy God. We thank you that in Jesus, Lord, our sin has been removed, and we will never experience the wrath of God. But we are your children and you discipline those whom you love. And we don't want to have to come under that. So God, we pray that you would stir our hearts as you did Cyrus, and stir our hearts as you did the heads of those families to be clean and to come to Jesus in brokenness and confession, agreeing with you with what you say about our sin, that we might walk in purity and worship you in simplicity, in purity, in spirit, and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.